Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am super excited to be on the line with Yashua Bengio. Yashua is a professor in the Department of Computer Science and Operations Research at the University of Montreal and the founder and scientific director of Mila. Yashua, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Hi, it's good to be here. It is super exciting for me to uh, to have you on the line. I, I, I've already said super exciting twice, so maybe that's an indication of uh, my enthusiasm for the opportunity to chat with you a little bit about your work. Um, your name is certainly well known among our audience uh, and your contributions to this field. I read somewhere that you are ranked as the most cited computer scientist worldwide, uh, or one of? As, uh, in terms of recent contributions, yes. So okay. There are people who have been in the field longer than me, and I'm among the young, old people. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And just last year, you, along with Jeff Hinton and Jan LeCun, received the ACM Turing Award for uh, your contributions with uh, deep learning, deep neural networks. Why don't we start with having you tell us a little bit about that journey and sure. you know, how you came to work in AI and on deep learning. And, uh, you know, of course, we'll get to what you're working on uh, now, but let's, let's start with, you know, some of that background. Yeah, deep learning, neural nets, it's been my life, my professional life, at least. I had started, uh, I would say, as an adolescent, reading a lot of science fiction and getting acquainted with the notion of AI and robots and so on, uh, with the three laws of robotics and, and all that, and, uh, and movies like uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. And then at university, uh, I studied uh, first uh, computer and electrical engineering and then computer science uh, in my master's, and I had to choose a, so a topic, and I, by chance, I got to read some of the early neural net papers from people like Jeff Hinton. And I realized that this was the field I wanted to work on because it was about trying to understand the principles that would explain our own intelligence as humans, and intelligence is very central to who we are, and uh, then building machines uh, thanks to understanding these principles, like the way that we understand how birds fly, but we're not necessarily copying the birds. We are trying to understand those principles so we can build airplanes that also fly. A lot of your recent work is focused on this idea of consciousness. You know, what's the relationship between consciousness and intelligence? Very good question. Well, so first of all, let me put things in perspective about deep learning. So a lot of the progress we've made in deep learning and neural nets in, in the last few decades has helped us to uh, build machines that can do pretty well at some of the things that brains are good at, including perception, the ability to understand images, sounds, and so on. But uh, there are also things that humans do with their brain, the things that we are conscious of. So when you decide to do something and you're able to report what you're thinking about or why you do something, that kind of cognitive ability, which is associated with being conscious of it, is not something that we're good at in AI right now. And uh, some people might even think that it's incompatible with all of the ideas that have been put forward with the neural nets and, and deep learning. And it's more related to some of the older ideas in AI based on symbols and logic and, and expert systems. But actually, your brain is a huge neural net that we need to understand better. 
And uh, the good news is that in the last two or three decades, neuroscientists, cognitive neuroscientists have made a lot of progress in understanding what is going on in your brain when you're doing something consciously, which parts of your brain get activated in what order and so on. And so whereas the, the research on consciousness was almost something taboo in the 20th century, in this century, it is something that has become you know, an important topic of serious science. And, uh, and, and so my research now is at the cusp of this transformation where computer science and AI research are starting to take stock of what has been discovered in, in neuroscience and try to take some of these ideas and import them into new types of deep learning systems that would come with uh, the advantages of being conscious, which I can also explain. One of the ways that you describe the relationship between the type of deep learning systems that we have today and this uh, model that you see as a possibility as we start to incorporate these ideas of consciousness is system one and system two, coming from Daniel Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit on you know the, these two different systems, uh, as he puts it, and uh, out of my, for my curiosity, was that an inspiration for the way you're thinking about this now, or did it become a, a handy explanation for uh, some of what you're doing? Oh, it's definitely an inspiration. Uh, his work and, and the work of psychologists and, and, and neuroscientists who have helped clarify the different types of functions that are being uh, that are happening in your brain has really uh, helped me and others uh, think about how modern AI systems could could incorporate these things. So first of all, realizing that you have these two very different types of cognitive abilities. So system one is the kinds of things that deep learning is good at right now, the kinds of things you can do in half a second, right? So you see an image, you know that it's a cat. And you don't need to think about it. It happens automatically. Uh, in fact, you don't even need to be conscious of it. Uh, mm -hmm. it uh, it's something that we can see in your brain that uh, if, if it's uh, uh, maybe happening on the side or you have not enough time, your brain will record that it's a cat, but it doesn't even get to your consciousness. Where uh, so, so these things are intuitive and they're hard to verbalize. Like You can't explain why you recognize that this was a cat. I mean, you could try to, ex to explain it, but it, it's not a good explanation. Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of the earlier failures of computer vision research was that we were trying to take our own internal explanation. So, you know, what is it that makes a cat? And take that and transform that into algorithms. Right. But it was never, you know, very good because there's a lot of the way that our brain does it, which we don't have access to. So mm -hmm. everything that is intuitive, that is uh, at a, you know, subverbals, uh, unconscious level is roughly... System one. There are some differences between you know conscious and conscious and system one, system two. But but it's it's a good way to uh, first order to understand things. And uh, system two is instead the things you typically do consciously, the things that you can report, the things that you you know you can verbalize. Not everything can be verbalized, but a lot of the things that are you're conscious of can be verbalized, and that you do in sequence. It's like at each step you you might be involving intuitive computation in your brain, but you're going to sequence these things in your, in your mind in, in a way that you control and, and that uh, uh, you know, gives you an extra power, an extra flexibility, which uh, allows us to do things like learn to drive or learn to drive in a new city, 
or figure out what to do in some unusual circumstances where we have to be creative and find solutions on the spot. And uh, it doesn't look like anything we've seen before. This kind of uh, very powerful, uh, dynamically adaptive behavior that uh, humans uh, employ to solve new problems is, is uh, very typical of system two. And current AI isn't very good at these things. Current AI, if you train the systems on some data, uh, and then you deploy them in situations that are not exactly uh, the same kind, uh, you get a big hit in performance. It doesn't work as well. Whereas humans are able to transfer their knowledge to new domains, to uh, you know, uh, new environments much more easily. And, and, and very often, this is when you use your conscious um, uh, strengths. So when you're doing something habitual, you don't need to think about it. So the example I give is when you're driving on the usual path, you can talk to the person besides you. You're conscious of the conversation, but you don't need to be conscious of the details of the road. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, you're taking chances when you're doing that. But but the point is a lot is going on unconsciously because it's something familiar that you, you have seen a lot and you don't need to be mindful of it. Whereas when you're doing something that's um, more unusual and you need to practice a new skill or to... Uh, have uh, a new coherent way of, of putting together pieces of knowledge, you're using system two and you, you're using conscious processing. It was interesting to me that in your description of these two systems, you talked about unvocalized or subverbal and, and you know things that we can vocalize and, and um, put into, into words. And in your descriptions of consciousness, you use the examples of language a lot to represent uh, these ideas. And I'm curious the relationship between the language as a construct and consciousness. Yeah, I, this is obviously an open question. So you have to realize that the science of consciousness is something fairly new, as I said, like a couple of decades, a bit more. And there are a lot that we need to understand. So we have to be very humble about how much we don't know. But mm-hmm. yeah, it seems very obvious that there's a very strong connection between language and, and consciousness, but they're not equivalent. For example, it, you know, you might have uh, things that are happening in the area of your brain that deals with language that are kind of different from the things that uh, have to do with being conscious of something. So, but, but there are strong connections. And in fact, one of my uh, current research uh, tracks is to exploit a hypothesis that uh, that connection is 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 um, is very tight in the sense that the high level concepts that you manipulate consciously also correspond to things like words, like things that you can verbalize. Mm-hmm. And so, the at the representation level, the two things are very close to each other. Yeah, there's been uh, past work, nothing that I could uh, cite or that I know intimately, but you know that we kind of talk about. Um, Generally, that you know, for example, in some cultures they don't have words for you know certain types of things, and the implication being that that kind of conditions their thought uh, in certain directions uh, that you know differs from other cultures, and it it seems very much in line with this idea of uh, consciousness as you're defining it. Yes, absolutely, and in fact, the way that I want to use this uh, hypothetical connection is to help the learning of these high-level concepts. So what deep learning is about, which I didn't have time to say earlier, is learning good representations. Mm -hmm. And we've been very good at learning 
let's say, low-level and mid-level representations with deep learning, especially in, on the visual input. But we don't yet have good algorithms to discover the right variables at high-level concepts that humans manipulate consciously. Of course, we can, we can kind of cheat by telling machines this is a cat, this is a dog, and then they kind of know what is a cat and a dog by example. But what we don't have is an ability to discover these high-level things. And so by connecting, say, video input with a corresponding language in, in the right way, we can force a, um, a deep learning system to learn representations, which at the top level would have features, if you want, that correspond to words or phrases or linguistic constructs. And that would help the, the representation learning system discover those high-level concepts in the same way that when we talk to children, using words in particular context helps them build the corresponding meaning of those words in their mind. But of course, they don't need the words. Uh, they're they building the meaning words. absent of the words. And initially, they learn a lot of things that they don't have words for. But uh, it's actually difficult to disentangle these things because even though it might take a couple of years before they start talking, uh, during those couple of years, they also hear a lot of uh, language. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting clue is that in some cultures, parents don't talk to their children. They talk with each other and the children just listen. Whereas in, in our Western cultures, we tend to talk a lot to our, our babies. Mm -hmm. So you might think that they're learning from that interaction. But it looks like even without a direct sort of naming, oh, uh, this is a cat, this is a dog, uh, the, the babies can, can catch the connection between the labels, the words, and uh, the things in the world. So we, d we jumped in uh, pretty quickly and started talking about some of the implications of how you're defining, defining consciousness, but the, uh, you really launched uh, into this field with a paper in 2017, the That's consciousness right. prior. That's right. What exactly is the consciousness prior? And maybe tell us the, you know, the main points that you're trying to convey in that paper. Okay, I'm going to try to do that in an accessible way. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, what does the word prior means? Uh, it's, uh, it's a term we use in, uh, in, in machine learning research to say that the learning system is uh, exploiting some kind of assumption about the world. And there's even theorems that say that you have to have assumptions, at least minimal ones, in order to be able to learn uh, successfully. And so the brain has these kinds of assumptions about the world that you know we inherit from our ancestors through that have you know and these these assumptions have encoded somehow in our genes and uh we are born with those things uh and they help us to learn faster and better in in the world around us and so when i said at the beginning that one of my research goals is to understand the principles that give rise to intelligence well an important part of this is what are the kinds of assumptions that humans exploit about the world that allow us to learn efficiently about it, to build, uh, to understand how it works, to, to, to learn language, to learn, to model the world, to act in the world, and so on. Uh, so notions, you can think of things like, well, notions of time and space, of agency, uh, that, you know, I do things and there are effects, uh, and so on, are probably things that we, we got from our genes and that our brain uh, is exploiting as a, an some kind of assumptions about the world. And so the consciousness prior is one such assumption which 
would be connected with the notion of consciousness, but actually, I actually have a whole list uh, of, of related assumptions. But, but this one is very central. So, so what it says is there are two kinds of knowledge about the world, which is uh, somewhere in our brain. And uh, that's basically the system one knowledge and the system two knowledge, right? So the system one knowledge is uh, knowledge that is difficult to put in words, as, as we were defining system one this way, essentially. Whereas system two knowledge is knowledge that is easy to put in words. Now, what kind of knowledge has the property that it can easily put in words? Well, uh, there is a nice structural property of the, the, the kind of knowledge we can communicate with, with words. And the property is that we are able to make predictions about things that can happen uh, about words given uh, other things that we know. So for example, if I say, if I drop my phone, it will fall on the ground. That sentence only involves a few concepts. It involves a phone, it involves the ground, it involves the act of dropping mm-hmm. and the result, right? That's very few elements if you think about it. Um, normally, when you try to make a prediction about something in the world, you need a whole lot of other things to make that prediction uh, accurate. So if I'm trying to predict uh, the next pixel that will show up at some position in the video that I'm seeing right now, uh, I need to know about all the other pixels and all the pixels that I've seen in, in the last few seconds or something or minutes. And that's like millions of numbers that come into that prediction. So pixels are difficult to manipulate to explain with language. They, they don't have this property. But instead, if I explain the world in terms of objects that I can name, like I did with my phone that could drop on, on, on the ground, this way of representing information, of representing knowledge, is, is one where we can make statements about things that should be true and things that should not be true, uh, where each of those statements only involves very few concepts so uh, with natural language, we can communicate a lot of knowledge about the world, but it's decomposed into little pieces like sentences. In each of these sentences only involves very few concepts. So in machine learning jargon, we say we can summarize this in a single phrase. We could say that the, the joint distribution of the high-level concepts is sparse. Sparse here means that, you know, if you if you draw the connections between all the concepts as a graph, the graph has very few edges coming out of each node. So each node corresponds to a concept, and each concept is attached to other concepts uh, through uh, very few edges, right? So that... You're saying the, the graph between the connections between the concepts in that sentence or the concepts in all the things that All the know. things that you could say. If you think about all the things that you could say, right. you decompose all the things that you could say into sentences, okay, just to make it, keep it simple. Now, each sentence is like a special kind of node in the graph, and each sentence connects to very few words. Now, the words are connected to many, all of the sentences that they, they, they could appear in, but each of these sentences only involves very few words. And so overall, the structure of that graph is extremely sparse. Whereas if I were to draw a graph of the statistical dependencies between pixels, it would almost need to be like fully connected, that every pixel needs to talk to every pixel. So what happens is that your brain has, con- has created these high-level variables, high-level concepts, which allow to decouple a lot of the complicated dependencies that would otherwise seem to exist. 
And in addition, so that's the, the consciousness prior, but there are like side statements to this. So one of them is that those high-level variables have to do with causality, right? So, so those dependencies, when I said uh, if I drop the phone, it's going to fall on the ground, it's also like a causal statement, right? It, it, it says something about if I do a particular action, this is going to be the consequence. And there's an object which is going to be affected by the action of dropping the phone. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is important because causality allows us to understand the world in a, in a strong sense that is goes beyond make, making predictions. It allows us to uh, imagine what could happen, for example, or what could have happened. This is these are called counterfactuals. You give an example in your. Um in some of your talks on this about putting on sunglasses and yes. that, you know, simple act, which can be reduced to uh, one bit, you know, one bit, you know, changes has a, has a, a significant implications on, yes. you know, all the pixels that are firing in your, in your retina. Um, but it's, you know, it's a single bit. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. And so I was talking about causality earlier and one of the particularly interesting aspects of causality is that it tells us about how the world typically changes. So it's not just about the, how the concepts are related to each other, but how these relations change over time due to agents like people or uh, robots eventually and animals doing things. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens is that those changes are very localized in the sense that they involve only one or a few concepts. So typically when you come up with an explanation for something that has happened and our brain constantly tries to come up with, you know, explaining what is going on uh, verbally, we end up being able to provide a, a very short explanation, like one sentence. Oh, he dropped the phone. But this is amazing, right? Because um, the world has changed. Like I've put on these uh, dark glasses and I'm able to explain it by referring to very few things. I have put on my dark glasses. Uh, whereas uh, if you didn't have that assumption, you might imagine that everything has changed and you can't do any prediction anymore. But now the fact that it's very few things that have changed allow you to recover from those changes. And this is what humans are good at. They're good at recovering from changes that are happening in the world. Uh, So that's this adaptive strength uh, skill that humans have that we would like to put in machines. So this whole research on consciousness is not just about understanding uh, an important part of who we are, who we are, which is clearly, you know, consciousness is a big part of it. But it's also building those abilities in machines to be more robust to the changes that can happen in the environment. The idea of consciousness, then, you kind of express it as this low-dimensional representation of the broader connections that are in the brain or that are in, you know, some system that we don't have yet. That's related to the idea of attention that we've yes. been experimenting with in neural networks. What are, what's the connection between those? Yes, yes. Very good question. And, and actually, it's a tough one because a lot of people still don't see the connection. So let me try to explain it. So remember I said that uh, we're exploiting this assumption that the, the, the dependencies between concepts have this uh, sparsity, like you know pieces of uh, knowledge each would be like a sentence. Now, if you want a machine or a brain to compute over that knowledge base that we have in our brain or in in a computer, you want to take advantage of that that sparsity. And a a good way to do it is to focus the computation on just the right pieces at each step, because then you only need to consider the interactions between a few variables. And that's much easier, both in terms of computations and in terms of the 
what we call the statistical advantage. So if something changes, then we can learn it quickly if it involves only a few variables. So, so attention is a way to exploit this, uh, this inherent sparsity, the assumed sparsity that I'm talking about, so that we can do this very special kind of computation that involves very few variables at a time. So attention selects just these few, few variables that come into our working memory and you know, then we can utter a sentence to, to, to share what, what we have in our mind. But, but there's more to this. The, the fact that we have this attention bottleneck, which is also a, this bottleneck is a central piece of uh, current theories of uh, consciousness, forces the part of the knowledge about the world which should go in system two to go there. So only the things that can go through this bottleneck that involves little pieces of knowledge involving a few variables at a time are being represented at that level. The stuff that you can't handle with, with uh, consciously goes, you know, system one and is, it takes more time to learn because it's about the interaction of many things together, like, like extracting information from images. But the stuff that somehow has this uh, property, the, 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 the consciousness prior property of the uh, that will be processed by system two, and now you you have you know advantages because you can do things at that level because you you exploit that sparsity. You can you can quickly you know reason and and do all kinds of of things, plan that are harder to do otherwise. Is the idea there that the this system two, you know, if we think of it as like a memory, you know, it the the bottleneck says that. It can't just store anything. It can only store these higher level concepts or representations. Is that? You're right. We only store the stuff that goes through our consciousness. So the, the things that you're unconscious of are going to stay in your mind, in your brain, you know, very short time, and then you're going to forget them. Whereas the things that you've been conscious of are more likely to be stored in long-term memory. But in, but in addition, when they go through this short-term memory that where you can operate on them, you can do pretty fancy things that is what we call thinking or reasoning or planning mm -hmm. or discovering something incoherent and uh, that we do consciously. So is the idea of attention as applied to, to consciousness that we might use attention as a way to train this consciousness prior? Yes, yes, yes. So attention is, is part of the architecture of the neural net in order to enforce the prior. What's interesting is it has already brought a kind of revolution within deep learning. So there's been amazing mm -hmm. progress in natural language processing. It started with the work we did in machine translation around mm -hmm. 2014. And then since 2016, this has been put in uh, Google Translate. And then you know it's become uh, the dominant uh, kind of technology for machine translation. But since then, uh, with uh, new architectures that exploit uh, consciousness, like what the, what's called the transformers, uh, the progress in all kinds of natural language tasks has uh, really, really progressed a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's changing the very nature of the way we think about neural nets. So in, in the traditional neural net, we think of the computation as operating one step at a time on these vectors, so like a fixed set of numbers, which correspond to you know, a bunch of neurons being having some activity. But when you have attention mechanisms, what it makes it possible is uh, to operate on sets of objects rather than on these fixed size vectors. 
So already uh, this is having a big impact in, in uh, natural language processing because language has this property that you, know, you want to just take some elements of what I've been talking about in, in the last five minutes and then reuse it uh, in order to say something you, you, you know, that makes sense with respect to what I said. So it tends to select a few elements, combine them in new ways, add some new things, but, but at each step, you only consider a few things at a time. And, and current transformer architectures uh, have this, uh, this inherent uh, structure. Another thing that's going on with these attention-based systems is that in a way we are introducing some of the uh, old ideas from AI of indirection and naming things and, and, and having things that have a type. So these are concepts that have, that have been there for, since the beginning of programming but haven't really, uh, it wasn't clear how to incorporate these ideas in neural nets. And so uh, with attention, there's something really interesting going on, which is now you select which neuron, for example, is gonna to talk to which neuron. So you, it's kind of like dynamically changing the connection pattern between, between neurons or groups of neurons. And, uh, and so when, when you have this dynamic connectivity going on, you need to carry information about where is the signal coming from? So it's not just the information I send you, but you know it's coming from me, and you need to keep track of that. In a lot of ways, the the idea of a consciousness prior makes me think of the work that's happening around model based machine learning. Yes. So uh, in reinforcement learning, for example, um, you know we're starting to see a lot of work, uh, or we've been seeing quite a bit of work around. Uh, models is the idea that the, the consciousness prior is like the specific type of model that's analogous to, you know, what you would call our consciousness. So, so the connection with model-based reinforcement learning is the following. When you do model-free reinforcement learning, you, you train a policy. In other words, you train a neural net, which is going to be called whenever you have to take a decision and it, you know, it takes a decision and, it's sort of automatic. So it's like when you're driving on a habitual route and you don't need to think about it, it knows what to do. And there's no need to involve consciousness. But when you plan in your route on the fly, let's say there's some funny construction going on on your road, and you know suddenly you realize that you're gonna have to use a different path and you think about it, that is planning on the fly. And that kind of planning on the fly is a form of reasoning and, and is something that's conscious. And that allows you to deal with these unexpected uh, occurrences. And that, in principle, is exactly what model-based reinforcement learning is about. So once you have a model of how the world works, you can create a new policy on the fly, right? Something you've never done before by combining the pieces of knowledge you already know, say, about pieces of roads and so on, in order to come up with a new plan. And that sort of dynamic decision-making about the future and, and imagining the future in order to take decision in, in a very flexible way is very, very characteristic of, of conscious behavior and system two. Uh, so I think that at the end of the day, we're gonna have reinforcement learning that has both model-free elements and model-based elements because they both have their strengths. So earlier I referred to the this idea of consciousness prior as like a, a, a memory. Yeah, is it strictly speaking memory in nature or is it 
more active. Does that question yeah. make sense? Yes,、yeah, so、it's more it's more active. So it's more about how you process information. But the connection、mm-hmm. to memory is it's also connected to how we represent a lot of、uh, conscious knowledge. So the things that you can access in memory are. Conscious pieces of information. I mean, they're not conscious until you retrieve them from memory, but they can become conscious. And so, there's a sense in which a lot of your conscious knowledge is stored in your long-term memory, and then it could be retrieved as needed in order to solve problems that you're facing today. And、uh, and and conscious processing is is dealing with the computations that your brain is doing to do these things, to 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 retrieve things from memory, to interpret what you're seeing now. Uh, and potentially also to visualize things that could happen in the future. I think the the memory analogy was that it was kind of the store of the relationships between yes. the yes. things. Yeah. So、But、think of it like the, the planning the,、uh, the based on、graph. that information is a total. That's not necessarily you know the same thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So so there's there's in a sense there is declarative knowledge. So all the pieces of knowledge that are in memory, and then.、Mm-hmm. There's the computation that you do on the fly in order to combine these pieces of knowledge with what is going on now or what you're imagining in order to、uh, come up with sometimes better explanations about the past or about what you'd like to do in the future. What's kind of the、um, the current state of this line of research, and how do you see it evolving? Oh, it's still in its infancy.、Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Think how many decades it took for like neural nets and deep learning as it stands now to to really、um, reach the maturity that it has. So, so I think this is a long term project,、mm-hmm. and I, I I also think that there's a huge importance in the collaboration between the the brain sciences, so, and 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 that I include cognitive science, neuroscience, but also philosophers of mind, which have been thinking about consciousness and mind for a long time.、Um, so all of these people who have been thinking about the the human side of the equation、uh, should be collaborating with the people in AI and deep learning、um, who are interested in ex- understanding those principles and、uh, trying different ways. Of、uh, of capturing these things in, in in computers, and and that can go also back in the other direction because one of the problems with say neuroscience or philosophy is that it's it's difficult to come up with good theories that explain the, the many observations that we have, but machine learning can、uh, come up with Interesting theories because they are motivated from the the learning theory point of view. In other words, so like my consciousness prior idea is something that makes sense from a machine learning perspective because it's a、uh, as soon as you start making assumptions about the world, that means you could learn faster,、uh, you could adapt faster, and so this these kinds of justification can help、uh, constrain theories that neuroscience or philosophers might be considering. So they would, at the end of the day, be theories that both are consistent with what we know about humans, and that makes sense from a, a computational perspective, from a, a from a, a learning perspective.、Uh, before we got started talking about consciousness, we were、uh, actually before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about kind of what's going on in the world now as we record this、uh, mid March and COVID nineteen and. One of the other topics that you've been spending some time working on is 
uh, how machine learning and AI could make a difference in in that setting. Can you share with us a little bit of what you're doing there? Yes, just to put a bit of context. Um, so I've been involved, of course, in basic research in, in machine learning and deep learning for, for many decades. But, but also in the last few years, I've realized the importance of thinking about how AI is deployed, will be deployed uh, in society, and how we can steer our collective boat in directions that will make uh, AIs a useful force for, for the world and for humanity. So this, uh, this is why I got uh, embarked, for example, in the project of writing the uh, Montreal Declaration for Responsible Development of AI. This is why I'm involved in a project called AI Commons to try to help uh, developers and NGOs and, and philanthropy work together on, on uh, applying AI to uh, areas that you know have uh, really AI for social good that may not be necessarily profitable, but are important to do for humanity. This is also why I've been involved uh, in the last couple of years in uh, working on how AI could be used to fight climate change. So we, we wrote a very long paper that uh, does a survey of uh, many different areas in which machine learning can be used to help uh, reducing uh, uh, greenhouse emissions, to design new materials, to better use the renewable energy sources that we have, or to even help people understand better the, what is going on with climate change. And then, of course, in the last few weeks, <laughs> like everyone else, I've been uh, you know, into this tornado um, to try to think with many of my colleagues, not just in, in AI, but also in, in other, uh, especially in healthcare, uh, thinking about what AI can do among many other disciplines that, that are you know, putting their brains together, what can we do to help fight this COVID-19 um, pandemics? So uh, I'm currently involved in a number of projects. One that uh, is taking a lot of my time these days is the design of a tracing app. So one of the things that we can do to really find a good balance between saving lives and allowing people to go out of their homes <laughs> Mm -hmm. is keeping track of uh, where people go and who they meet so as to estimate their risks of being infected and reduce those risks. And we want to do it in a way that's very mindful of privacy, um, maybe unlike some of the apps that have already been uh, put out there. Yeah, this has come so, up quite a bit recently. This yes, it's very important. We, you because, know, just uh, use Bluetooth and make the information available to, you know, the benevolent government agencies. That's that right. Will, yeah. Um, so I don't think it would pass uh, in North America. And I think there are good reasons for this. But, but the good news is there are technical solutions to this, and we're working on that. And we're working on uh, machine learning to help predict your risk level based on the encounters you have before. So, you know, maybe... You didn't meet somebody. You didn't meet somebody who uh, uh, we knew was infected, but maybe you met somebody who met somebody who met somebody who was infected. So then, what's mm -hmm. the probability that you are infected, right? And and you've made twenty of these encounters. So maybe the risks accumulates, right? So how do you um, uh, aggregate all that information and help people know what is their risk? Another thing we're working on is the design of new drugs. So machine learning and especially deep learning has been used in the last couple of years. There's been a, a flurry of papers using these systems to propose new candidate drugs. Um, in particular, we're working on antivirals. In other words, drugs that you would give to somebody who's already sick and maybe who's very sick and we are you know, concerned that they might die. And so we, we could give them these um, 
experimental drugs because <laughs> these are new things. And so there's, there's a, a problem where machine learning can come handy is that the normal, usual development uh, of new drugs could take many years, sometimes a decade. Uh, but it turns out that machine learning can greatly accelerate the search for good molecules. When you're talking to clinicians and practitioners, folks from the, the healthcare side of things, as well as um, virologists and epidemiologists and, and uh, kind of the, the end users of systems like these, what are the things that they say they need from you know, us as a community of um, you know, data scientists, machine learning uh, researchers and the, the like? Well, it's not always easy to get that answer. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, I've been learning a lot uh, mm. in, in, in the last few weeks. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people have been learning a lot because we all need to understand what is going on. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are many questions. Uh, on the healthcare and clinical side, they, they would like to be able to predict, just monitor what is going on is, is already difficult. And uh, predict... Uh, where there might be greater need for healthcare resources to allocate resources properly, um, predict what patient, given their history, would be most likely to need like an ICU uh, or a respirator, um, uh, predict the risk level of people, as, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, help uh, epidemiologists model what, you know, what's going to be the likely uh, scenarios that we're, we're going to be facing. Even even things like logistics. So a lot there are a lot of problems right now where we're just not organized properly to deal with uh, the massive number of people calling for help. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, th there's just lots and lots of areas where uh, machine learning can be useful, and uh, it takes a lot of time to understand those issues, to talk to those people, uh, to get access to data is a big thing. But now the good news is. In our societies, access to healthcare data has been a huge problem um, because we've put all of our uh, weight on uh, privacy, and uh, it's, it has meant that it's been difficult to for researchers, machine learning researchers, to have access to this kind of data. But but now, what is happening with COVID is that the health authorities are seeing that uh, we're missing a boat, like or they are you know quickly changing the ways that we're doing things to allow researchers to get their hands on, on the proper data sets, or we're going to lose lives where you know, we, we could have saved those lives. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an important moment to demonstrate the need for a more agile uh, data infrastructure uh, for healthcare. With regards to the app that you mentioned, we've talked quite a bit on the podcast about differential privacy. Does that come into play uh, in allowing you to use this location data in a a private way? Uh, we're looking at different options. Right now, I don't think we need differential privacy. So we, we may need to blur some of some pieces of evidence that would make it too easy to retrace people. Mm -hmm. But if you want to predict the risk level of a person, in other words, predict the probability that you are currently infected, um, you don't need to know where I was. Um, you only need to know that uh, you know, maybe yesterday I, I was close to somebody who had risk level six and the day before I was close to somebody who had risk level seven mm -hmm. and, and so on. And you don't need to know uh, the kind of trace of where everyone was. That can be computed in each person's phone. The only thing you need to 
share as data for training the, the risk predictor is what were the encounters, like in the sense of what were the risk level of people you encountered and when. And that from that information is very difficult to trace who met with whom because you don't you don't have a handle on, on who was where when. So so I think that the you can you we could globally share the level of the planet, that kind of data and build very good models of your um, risk level. You know, when you look across all of the things that are happening, you know, your research and uh, elsewhere, what are the things that um, you see as most exciting in terms of AI's contribution to this fight? Well, I guess I'm very biased. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, I'm, I'm most invested right now in this tracing thing because um, mm -hmm. I think that uh, medical treatments are going to take months, probably you know year-ish, two years for in some cases to converge to something everyone can have, especially vaccines. You have to understand that before we release a vaccine, uh, we need to make sure this drug is really, really harmless because we're going to give it to everybody, right? So right, right. <laughs> If and that process takes a while. Yeah, exactly. even if it's even if it's fast tracked, it no, still but like takes if, a while. If one percent of the people we give a vaccine to die because of the vaccine, that is not good. Okay. Right. But a antiviral is a drug you could give to somebody who's already close to dying, anyways, and so we can take a, a bigger chance. And so we don't need to wait a year or two uh, to know that it's okay. And so I'm I'm invested in the a project around uh, the development of new antivirals. Um, I mean, uh, before that, there already been work in using machine learning to test existing drugs. This is like the first line. Is there a drug that has already been approved, so we don't need clinical trials, uh, that we can just use tomorrow morning? Okay, that's already going on. There's a bunch of clinical trials going on with promising leads, and machine learning has already been used to suggest candidates. But the next step, if you know, if none of these things work, is to develop uh, a, a new molecule that didn't exist. All right. So, so the tracing thing is very important because it it it's uh, it's something we can do even before all this, right? Even before we find which those those drugs and 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 do clinical trials for them, we should be able in a matter of days and weeks to all have on our phone an app that will help trace our contacts uh, in a, in a privacy-respecting way um, and make it possible for us to meet, for example, other people and know that they're unlikely to be infected. And so it's okay. We can be close to each other. We can work together. Uh, we mm -hmm. can be in the same bus together. This is very important. A lot of people right now don't have any transportation because if you don't have a car or if you don't drive and you're infected, for example, you, you can't have transportation. So like we need to know who is likely to be infected and not, or at what degree, in order to organize society around this for the next probably one or two years. Well, super important work. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about what you're up to, both the work that you've been focusing on broadly, the consciousness work, as well as the more recent uh, work you've been doing uh, in this fight against COVID. My pleasure. It's been great to speak with you. Thank you. Bye. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. 
To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.